If you will find John chapter 1 verse 36. In John chapter 1 verse 36. John writes, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Now, it's a common moniker. We are used to this. Um, we're used to seeing Jesus referred to in these terms, but I want to take some time and flesh out what that really means, especially in terms of atonement. Now, in terms of atonement, being a lamb, the, the Lamb of God, uh, means to equate Him with the sacrifice of the Old Testament law now in, in human form. In the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats, we now have been given a human representation, a human symbol for that. And also, the idea that He is the Lamb of God is going to prove to be vital for the Lord's ultimate plans for humanity. Now that's... We can assume He has plans. But if we look at the entire case, we might be a little discouraged about those plans. Because we are fallen and sinful. We are disgraceful in our hearts and in our minds. There's no doubt about that. It wasn't just an Israelite issue. It wasn't just a New Testament issue. The fact of the matter is that human beings have only managed to do one thing well in our entire course of development, and that is break the heart of a righteous and just God. It is all we do well, sin. Sin is what comes natural for us and is what we do better than anything else. Now despite this, by being fallen and sinful and disgraceful, Christ the Creator God did not mold us from the earth so that we can be judged as a race, found guilty and condemned in our entirety to everlasting perdition. He has every right to do that. There's every right within the heart and mind of God to do as He threatens to do when the Israelites have, have sinned against God while Moses was on the mountain and say, I will simply raise up generations from your seed. He could start all over again, wipe us out, catastrophically judge us and condemn us. He has no reason to be loyal save it is part of His eternal and everlasting will. God wanted differently. As I've spoken before, and maybe you take it for granted, but the reality is this, this situation in which humanity finds itself in relation to their God is a rigged game. There's no other way I can think of to explain it that way in that God is either glorified in saving us or glorified in judging us. Either He's absolutely, perfectly holy or He is merciful. Either way, God receives what He is most hungry for. For the God who needs nothing, He has expressed His desire for this one thing and one thing alone, and that is glory. To be glorified. So God is either glorified in judgment or He's glorified in salvation. But both glorify Him. He'll be just as glorified at the Bema seat where we pass through the flame as one who has been protected by His blood as He is at the great white throne of judgment where His justice shines. It's not a shameful thing for God to judge the world. It's a holy thing for God to judge the world. We don't need to view God as ourselves. 
I can't judge the world. I can't judge you because I am sinful. Because I am unholy by my very nature. I am imputed holy and righteous because of a blood-based relationship with Christ Jesus. But it doesn't make me better than you. It makes me the same as you. The only source of righteousness is that in Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't like Tony. Jesus is sinless and perfect. God not only declared these things to be true, but came Himself in human form and lived them out perfectly. He has every right to judge because He has done it. He has every right to judge. It's righteous and holy and just that He would judge. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't judge us and condemn us, our entire race, to everlasting condemnation, to perdition, to hell itself. He doesn't do that. The intention of the Lord through Christ is stated in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. And I would enter... Jack to say this, the oppression and the affliction belongs to God. He, he comes and He bears this, but it is my oppression and my affliction and yours that we deserve. That He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He comes and bears the penalty for crimes, the consequences of actions that are not His own. And He does this without complaint. And although Christ is God incarnate, as prophesied, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call His name Emmanuel. We know Emmanuel means God with us. And John 10, 30, His own declaration, I and the Father are one. He would accept the fate of the one cosmically significant sacrifice for human sin for all time. He therefore agrees that He will come and He will bear our burdens. He will bear our sin and our shame. He will become guilty of it. He will trade His righteousness for our unrighteousness so we can now have His righteousness. Christ would be the substitute for our mistakes. He would bear our iniquity on the cross and die for our crimes without complaining or defending Himself. Now, I say this again, repeat myself, but it's so significant because people don't do this. People do not quietly bear the penalty of another person's crimes. We complain to high heaven when we're guilty. We argue to get out of speeding tickets when we are guilty as sin. We don't want to bear our own weight, much less the weight of anyone else. Maybe your children, maybe your loved ones, maybe your husband or your wife or your grandchild, maybe someone directly connected to you. Would you bear that iniquity? Would you bear the penalty for that sin? But not for a total stranger. We consider people a person a hero when they give a kidney to someone that's just an acquaintance or a friend. Imagine bearing the penalty for the sin of another 
And that penalty is death. He does it without complaining. Now Billy Graham connected this New Testament truth, that sacrifice, the New Testament sacrifice, with the initial Old Testament sacrifice that begins the whole train of thought that we're going to look at. And he says this, he says, the blood of the Lamb, we're talking about the Passover, the blood of the Lamb applied over the doorpost on the night of Israel's deliverance from Egypt distinguished the obedient from the disobedient. He's absolutely right. The Jews learned their lesson directly from the mouth of God. Sacrifice the Passover lamb, paint the lintel and the post with that blood, and death will literally pass over that house. Death that has come to strike the entire nation of Egypt will miss your house because it is now covered, marked with the blood. And it was a mark of obedience. And to be without it was a mark of disobedience, right? To not have the blood was as significant as having the blood because it signified a disobedience to the direct command of God. Just so today, the applied blood of the Lamb of God is the distinguishing mark of God's called out ones, the church. We have been obedient to a call from God. We have heard when God called and we answered. And because we heard when God called, now the blood has not been symbolically, but radically and eternally applied to our lives. Salvation is always blood-based. Without the shed blood of Jesus, there is no remission of your sins and mine. We will explore that in the Old Testament and all the way to the New. Let's begin with this. Moses writes... In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Now, it's, it's a Levitical statement, but it could just as much be heard on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night in any Bible preaching, Bible believing, Protestant church anywhere. Our relationship with God is based on the blood of Jesus. And it's lived out in our lives based on our obedience to His command. That God has spoken and because we are the called out ones, the church, we hear and we listen and we respond with obedience. That God has every right to tell us what to do. He has every inclination to order our lives and that He's glorified in doing that. Go back and see the previous point. God's goal is what? Glory. And He wants to be glorified through us. So, all the way back in the ministry of Moses to the Israelites, keep my statutes and my rules. That's what God says. He then says, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So we now see... A, a new relationship or an old relationship. And that is the relationship between obedience and life. If I obey God, I live. If I disobey God, then death can come. Now, of course, he speaks specifically here of temporal life and temporal death. But, of course, that's the beginning of a conversation that began with Abraham. That began before that. Begin in Genesis chapter 3, in which disobedience leads not just to, to temporal or, or death now, but obedience can lead to, excuse me, that obedience leads to 
temporal life now, and disobedience can lead to a temporal death now, but disobedience can lead to ultimate death, unending death, infinite death, and that obedience can lead to infinite life or eternal life. Look, obeying the laws and the rules that Moses writes, expressing the verbal plenary inspiration of God. That's another statement we have to make all the time. We preach these verses because they are all verbally plenary inspiration. But every verse of the Bible is the Word of God. Not just the ones we like. Not just the red ones. Every verse is God's God's truth. Without exception. Now, that comes with expectations, doesn't it? That means I expect to find substantive truth in every verse. And I'll tell you this much. If you really study it, you find that every verse points in one direction. Every verse points to Calvary. Every verse does. So let's see how this one does. Leads, if we do this, if we listen to the words of Moses, it leads to life for all who keep God's rules. It's a simple statement. Now look, when seeking to understand the Scriptures, we can never afford to concentrate too heavily on a single detail, even a single inspired verse. But our hearts and minds must be drawn to concentrate on all biblical truths simultaneously. Which, once again, see the previous point, it means every time we read the Scriptures, if it's back in Leviticus, if we're reading through the Scriptures and we're in Leviticus right now, or if we just happen to want to go through and do a Leviticus study, we're going to see all about the sacrificial system and we're going to be led all around the Pentateuch and through all of that, that unbelievable truth but its ultimate declaration is Jesus. Those are His words and not mine. His confrontation to the Pharisees. They thought they could find life in the Scriptures and what they found was Him. was the declaration of Jesus Christ. So, so as we look at this, the first question in the mind of any student of the Bible is, how does this connect to the Gospel? How does this say... Because you know that that's what you'll get confronted with in the in the in the pastor it is once you just preach the gospel. Well, I'm here to tell you is this: the gospel's bigger than a lot of, to be honest with you, simpletons think it is, and it courses through every verse of the Old and New Testament. It's not the ABCs of salvation. That's a corruption. That's the manipulation of the gospel for false fruit. That saves no one. Martin Luther wrote a biblical atonement. He said, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it's lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now choose what you want. Look, at the core of the atoning effect of the Levitical law were two truths. We've got to pull these two truths out, not just of 18.5, but of the entire Levitical law. And that was one, men and women would violate the law and live imperfectly. Therefore, the sacrifices weren't once, they were all the time, right? They didn't go and offer the atoning sacrifice for sin once in a lifetime, but they went back over and over and over again. It was an unending cycle of their sin and their attempts at atonement. 
And every time there was an, every time that unending cycle continued to cycle, to rotate, there were opportunities for what? For corruption, for looking aside. Therefore, what comes in to the Levitical faith is, is countless incursions from Canaanite religions that offered a different way. Simply put, people started to realize the hollow nature of just sacrificing a goat. They missed the point that the goat pointed toward, toward another sacrifice. A more perfect sacrifice. As, as we always miss the point. Okay, so men and women would violate the law and live imperfectly and the sacrificial system existed to offer temporary atonement for their sins, but not eternal. Once again, it never promises, never promises an eternal remission of sins. The law never says, you do this and you'll be forever forgiven. Once again, the law always points to a greater sacrifice. Therefore, blood was the elixir that provided life through the keeping of the laws and rules. Men and women live by blood. We are made free in Christ Jesus because of His blood. And it sounds gory and it sounds foreign and it also sounds ancient. And it is biblically supportable. If you take the blood out of the gospel, there's just simply no gospel. If you take the blood off the life, it's never been redeemed. In Leviticus 17.11, Moses writes, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to, take, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So now we have another connection that's being made in a vital connection. I now have the fact that blood is being shed and sacrificed on an altar and a connection to what I'm most concerned with, and that is my soul. My soul. Not, not temporal life or temporal death, but now because it's the soul, eternal life and eternal death. We have now changed the entire nature of the conversation that we are having. For the Israelite, keep up with the sacrifices, and it meant you could continue to live in prosperity in the land. But now, our Lord, who always knew what He was doing from the very start. Brother Brian, he's not making this up as he goes. It was laid before the foundations of the world. Well, it's all about my soul. It's all about your soul. It's all about the soul of the Israelites. It was all about the fact that the soul is stained by sin and not just the life. It's not the fact that you messed up. It's that your soul is eternally and everlastingly stained with sin. That something has to be done to eliminate the stain upon our very souls. Blood provides atonement. But the law was never capable of providing eternal atonement as the promise in Leviticus 18.5 is only for temporal life and not for everlasting life. But now the writer of Hebrews takes this, beautifully takes this and leads us exactly where we need to go. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, first off, he supports this biblical invective of blood when he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So we're right back to where we started in Leviticus 18.5. 
in Leviticus 17, 11, the very same truth that the Lord has always preached to us is that you want to be free from the penalty of your sin, then blood must be shed. Here's an issue. And the issue is this. In the terms of being the way we are, and I mean guilty as sin before a righteous and just and holy God, dragged down to the pit of hell by the weight of our condemnation in sin. Because that is true. Blood has to be shed to free me. It can be mine, where I have been condemned rightly, it will not shed me, but it is required of me. It will, I cannot die a glorious enough death for God to appease His wrath against my sin. But I owe Him that, nonetheless. And so much more. I owe Him eternity of suffering. But for me to be turned free, which means set free, turn loose upon this world, then what must happen? Then blood must be shed so that my sins can be forgiven. Sin is so marring to the human relationship with God, so devastating to our standing before Him, that something must take on that guilt and pay for that crime. The demand on the heart of the eternal King for justice is so great that His heart must be satisfied. God cannot, cannot deny Himself. He can't be a God of justice and say all of a sudden, well, this doesn't matter. That's what I do. I can do that. I can be unjust in my mercy because I'm so guilty myself. Brother, Brother Joseph can confess to me some, some, some terrible situation and I can be merciful toward it and tell him it's okay even when it's not, even when it violates the law of God because I'm just as much a breaker of the law of God as you are or even more so. But God's not that way. He's holy. And to be holy means right is always right. It's never wrong. It's never gray for God. Right is always right. He's not bound by our limitations. The limitations of sinful flesh. So because right is always right in God's sight, God can't just simply nod His head and wink towards sin. He cannot do that. He must judge it. There's penalty and it must be placed on someone. Someone must satisfy the heart of God. Look, all the Old Testament sacrifices, laws and rules pointed to one distinctive in Christianity. The need for one final and overarching sacrifice to meet the requirements created by the failure of mankind to seek God. Because I have failed to seek God. I've always sought my own way. I've always done wrong. I've always sinned. My sins are not just... My sins are presumptuous and evil and they drag me to hell. And yours are too. And I'm unable to make this up to God. Someone had to take on the penalty of this sin. Someone had to pay it all. The writer of Hebrews explains this beautifully in chapter 10 of that letter by saying, For since the law has put a shadow of the good things... Jimmy has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. Look, the need for for the atonement system of the Bible is because God's ultimate goal in Christ is not for us to be happier in this world. It's not about this world. See, once again, if we read Leviticus 18.5 flat, what we get is... Offer your sacrifices and God will give you a good life now. Offer your sacrifices in a timely fashion, the way the law instructs, and you'll always have a decent life. But God's goal wasn't like that. God's goal wasn't that at all. He wants good things in their true realities. These are His words. But a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. That God's goal was beyond this life and beyond this world and beyond your happiness and your self-satisfaction, beyond houses and cars and lands and possessions, but it was to the throne of God and beyond. God's ultimate goal is a reunion of His church with Himself in eternity forever. That's His goal. He had to make this possible. That's what He wanted was good things in their true realities. Because of this infinite goal for the entire teaching of the Bible, the continuous sacrificial system of the Old Testament could not forever justify God's need for justice and completely atone for all sins. In other words, it couldn't make us perfect. It couldn't make us perfect. It could take care of a sin here or a sin there. Anything I was conscious of or anything I was willing to offer the sacrifice for. Anything I was big enough to admit. All those things are problems for us, right? Because I'll admit a certain number of my sins that I'm I'm comfortable admitting. But there are those sins in the darkness, aren't there? There are those things I can't even face. That every once in a while just come leaping back into my memory and I realize that was me that did it. I was there. It wasn't some, some disconnected body or some, some, some time of my life in which I can just chalk it away to being young. I did those things and you did too. The only way the old sacrificial system could even put a dent in my sin is if I was willing to actually admit all my sin and offer my sacrifices for it. But I was never going to. They were never going to either. Build up an incredible debt of sin because I'm unable to even look at myself rightly. Not without the help and the work of God. Not without the justifying work of Jesus Christ. The limitations of the old system are apparent in its constancy. Look, because the sacrifices are always being offered, they must not do any long-term good Because we went back and had to offer it every single year. The sacrifices told the tale that they were not enough. They would not ultimately save us. All they did was call out the need for one great sacrifice. For one sacrifice that could satisfy the heart of God and the law of God. But they serve the Lord through rekindling His called people, to me reminding His called people of their sinful nature and disastrous 
actions. Unfortunately, the only hope the law offered was in placing that guilt on the sacrifice given through animals which do not take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats do not take away our sins, but temporarily assuages the anger of God by more temporal opportunity, but no eternal relief. They just kick the can of sin down the road. And eventually there's simply no more sacrifices to offer. Sin has run its course in our life and has condemned us and it's led us into places we would never imagine going. Because all we've done is kick it down the road. Due to this limitation, Christ came physically in the world not as a priest to offer more sacrifices. He did this. Nor as a prophet to preach greater sermons. He did that. Or as a king to lead his people. He did and does that. But as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of those he has personally called. He has come to take upon himself the sins of the church. Paul teaches us that the ultimate wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the blood of Jesus, atonement is offered today. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. And how did He pay it all? He took our place. The cross that was yours became His. The suffering that is yours by right of your sin was His. The death that was mine and ours because of our sinful nature, Jesus died. He took on the sins of the entire church. Why? Because He was capable of bearing those sins. Because He would not be overcome by them because His righteousness is infinite. He is an infinitely perfect sacrifice to assuage the heart of an infinitely perfect God. Today, your atonement can no more be accomplished by your good behavior than it could by sacrificing bulls and goats in Solomon's temple. See, all we've done nowadays is substitute. For the, for, the, for the Jews, they misunderstood the law, they misunderstood the sacrifices, and they just kept on offering bulls and goats and pigeons and whatever they could offer till they'd run out of everything and then the sin was still there. And for us, we keep trying to do good. Trying to be good. If I'm good, God will love me. If I'm good, God will let me into heaven. You can't be good enough. Because heaven's not for the good. The heaven's, heaven's for the righteous. It's for those who've been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. And not people who lived a good life. Tell you what, the world will let you live a great life. It's a fantastic, satisfying life. But it won't earn a spot in heaven because a spot can't be earned there. It was purchased, purchased by Christ and given to His people. Those measures do not work because atonement has already been accomplished. Once and for all time through the blood of Jesus, which once applied by faithful obedience to the gospel, takes away sin. This isn't a this is this is good news. What you could never accomplish on your own, Jesus accomplished long ago. Two thousand years ago, the price, the penalty for your sin was paid by Jesus on Calvary. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think, what can I do to earn favor of a, of a God who has everything? Because the favor's already been earned. The favor that's earned is now freely given by way of the gospel. 
Look beyond yourself and your own strengths and do as Jonathan Edwards prayed. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Make that your prayer today. God, bless me to see the gospel the way Jesus bled to make it true. God, bless me to see my sins the way Jesus bled to pay for them. And God, bless me to see my life the way Jesus bled to set it free. Stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Look, may you see the gospel eternally today and the sacrifice of Christ for your personal sins. We do that today. Let's stand together.